You're listening to the Plastic Shift Podcast. Welcome to the Plastic Shift Podcast. I'm Eileen Farnood, one of the students of the Plastic Shift, and I'm reaching out to several experts working to solve issues with plastic pollution. This podcast showcases unique perspectives on this problem to identify what its most important aspects are. Today I'm joined by Matt Prindeville, the CEO and Chief Solutioneer for Upstream. Upstream is a nonprofit geared towards creating innovative solutions to plastic pollution and today's throwaway culture. In the last several years, Matt has advised the United Nations Environment Program on their plastic pollution strategies and written for The Guardian, GreenBiz, and Sustainable Brands, among other publications. His work has been featured in The Economist, The New York Times, and Fast Company, among many others. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I am really excited to be having this conversation, particularly because Upstream has been doing some really impactful work when it comes down to tackling plastic pollution. And here at The Plastic Shift, we found your work to be really inspiring for us and the initiatives that we've created. So just to kick things off, could you introduce Upstream to our listeners and share with us what you do there and what the organization's journey has been like over the past few years. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's great to be with you. And yeah, so Upstream, um, we work to spark innovative solutions to plastic pollution. But for us, the problem isn't just plastic. It's really the throwaway culture that is driving plastic pollution and a whole host of other environmental problems. And so we work to make throw away, go away. And we have three core strategies that we work on. We help businesses make the transition out of single use plastic to real and reusable products and stuff. Uh, We also have a policy project where we've developed a reusable foodware ordinance that makes it so that when you're sitting down to eat at a restaurant, you're going to be served on real plates with real cups and real cutlery. And it helps pave the way for reuse service companies to come in and provide services for takeout to go and meal delivery. So let me give you an example. If you were to walk into a coffee shop and you forgot your reusable mug, well, you could rent one for a dollar. And then later on that day, you're in a different coffee shop, a different part of the city. You hand them your dirty mug. They give you your next coffee to go in a clean mug because all the cafes are using that same kind of reusable cup service. Um, So we have the policy project that's really focused on that and on infrastructure. And then lastly, we work on kind of culture change, social marketing campaigns. I think one of the, some of the obstacles that we see to really addressing plastic pollution is that a lot of folks can't imagine what their lives would be like without all the single use stuff in it. We've really gotten accustomed to all of this throughput, this material throughput of disposable stuff in our lives. And so a big part of our job is to kind of paint the, the vision for what the future could look like without all this single-use stuff. And also to like launch campaigns that poke fun at single-use products and, and also show that there's a better way than throwaway, which is really what we're focused on. Um, so that's who we are and that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate a bit more on these campaigns. I know there's been a lot of major initiatives that you've launched as a part of Upstream particularly like the Break Free from Plastics movement. I know Upstream has been involved in advising the UN, which is super cool. Um, So I think it'll be really interesting to hear more about sort of what specific projects you've been up to as well. 
Yeah, excited to talk about that. And, you know, maybe I could even go back a little bit in, in time too, mm-hmm. because, you know, we've really seen this, this evolution um, in thinking around kind of recycling during the 90s and building this kind of idea around zero waste and then the attention on plastics and thinking about who's responsible for the problems that we're seeing with plastics and waste. And so at Upstream, we were actually founded uh, back in 2003. So we've been in existence for 17 years now. And we were founded by uh, activists and leaders in both the United States and in Canada. So um, these were folks that helped to build the zero waste movement in the 1990s. And, and during the 90s, the conversation was in cities and in state governments and pro- provincial governments was really around how much recycling should we have? You know, should it be tw- 10, 10%, 30%, 50%? And they were part of a, of a band of kind of radicals back then that said, no, it, it should be zero waste. We really should be striving um, for zero waste. But through their work in helping to mainstream that idea during the 90s, they felt that this movement that they'd helped to create had become overly focused on the end of the pipe. And they said, you know, we're never going to be able to recycle or compost our way to a sustainable future. We've got to work upstream um, to redesign all these systems that are generating all the waste in the first place. And so a big part of the, the early part of Upstream's history was a, around bringing this concept that's a, kind of a wonky European policy concept called extended producer responsibility to the United States and to Canada. And so EPR, um, I know we've, you've got a savvy audience, but for folks that don't know what extended producer responsibility means, it basically means that if you're a company that you take responsibility for the environmental impacts of your product and of its packaging. And typically what that's meant is that there's legislation that's passed that makes you know, computer companies, uh, for example, responsible for paying for the collection and recycling of computers or um, cell phone manufacturers <laughs> uh, responsible for the collection and recycling of cell phones. And we've had a lot of success. There's been EPR laws that have been passed all over the place here in the United States and Canada. But a lot of the focus that we've had as an organization over the last eight years has really been around packaging. And increasingly over the last five years really focused on, on the impacts of plastic for all the reasons that your audience is aware of. And so you know, we, we've done a lot of work over the years. I mean, we helped to found the Global Break Free from Plastic movement. We really got the conversation going in the United States among the NGOs here around how do we align and work on campaigns and align our strategies together so that we can have impact at scale. Um, We've also done a lot of work with city governments um, through a project with the Urban Sustainability Directors Network to help city government officials really see that plastics aren't a one-off. You don't just pass a plastic bag ban and then you're done. That there's really a a long-term series of policies and strategies that city governments can do to not just tackle plastic pollution, but to tackle waste um, in general. And of course, you know, we've done some international work as well, like helping um, the United Nations Environment Program with some of their strategies on plastics. But I think the place where we've really settled in as our niche, um, and this has really been the focus of our work over the last two years, has really been around articulating and, and moving forward a vision for source reduction and reuse as being central solutions to plastic pollution. And not just plastic pollution, but for waste 
in general. And I'm excited to talk with you guys more about that today. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that Upstream started off with EPR, which is actually a policy that we're really supportive of here at Plastic Shift. So I think that's really interesting. And I was also wondering, so I know Upstream has been around for a very long time, and I know you have been working at Upstream personally for, I think, around a decade now. That's so right. I was yeah. wondering if you could elaborate more on how you initially sort of got involved in plastic pollution in the first place <laughs> um, and like what inspired you to take action personally? I uh, love that question. You know, I started working with Upstream actually right when the organization was founded. So I've been working with the organization as an employee for the last 10 years, but I worked with the founders way back in 2003 when the organization was founded on helping to pass one of the very first extended producer responsibility laws for electronics, for computers and televisions that were going to waste here in the United States. And so, you know, I'm, I got really turned on to EPR and waste issues because of Upstream it, early on in my career, even when I was working for a different organization. And when I, when I joined Upstream um, in 2011, there was this really interesting development that had happened that kind of set the stage for, you know, why we're working on plastics right now. And that was that um, one of our colleagues, one of my colleagues at an organization called As You Sow that does shareholder advocacy, they basically work with shareholders to put pressure on big corporations to become better environmental citizens and, and citizens of the planet, right? They had launched a number of shareholder resolutions targeting beverage companies. So targeting Coca-Cola, Pepsi, um, Nestle Waters, bottled water, soda primarily. And they said, look, you guys say you support recycling, <laughs> but you're opposing things like container deposit, deposit refunds, bottle bills all over the world. And so these are the proven policies that you can use to get your products back and you're opposing them. And so one of the companies actually wrote back. <laughs> so Nestle Waters North America, which is the biggest bottled water company in North America, said, yeah, you're right. You know, we're saying one thing that we support recycling, but then we're standing in the way of policies that can boost recycling. We want to fix that. Will you work with us on extended producer responsibility? And so we at Upstream, you know, heard about this. We got a call from our friends at As You So, and they said, this is happening. And we saw it both as a, a major threat because there's a big bottled water company that is moving into the space and saying they support EPR. But we also saw it as an opportunity. And we, over the course of three years, we helped to facilitate a number of dialogues. So we did a dialogue with the solid waste and recycling industry. We did a dialogue with city government officials from around the United States. And we did a dialogue with consumer brands around supporting some version of EPR for packaging. We worked with our partners. We developed some model legislation. We introduced it into half a dozen states over the course of three years. And to make a long story short, we failed. And I think one of the major reasons that we failed is because we would go into state legislatures and we would talk to the politicians there and they would say, huh, recycling, isn't that done? Like I've got a blue cart or I've got a blue bin and I put all of our, our bottles in there and it goes off to some fairy tale land where it turns into something beautiful. Like, isn't recycling done? And so we realized that at that moment in time, we were a little bit like a solution in search of a problem. But 
what we found out through this experience is that the problem we were looking for was plastic pollution. And this was an issue that was just starting to emerge as an issue that was commonly started to be understood by people in the United States and around the world. And I call uh, plastic pollution kind of the first social media environmental issue because there were these little organizations like um, our friends at the Five Gyres Institute and the Algalita Marine Research Institute that were going out into the oceans and they were counting all the little bits of plastic and then documenting the impacts on wildlife and putting it on social media and engaging people around this idea that, hey, you know, we're putting a lot of plastic into the environment. It's winding up in the oceans and it's having a major impact. And I think for kids like myself, I'm in my 40s, you know, I grew up reading Dr. Seuss and the Lorax, you know, like that it spoke to this like, oh my God, we are fouling our nest, right? Like we are literally putting out these indestructible materials into the environment and we are fouling the nest of our home. And so, you know, we saw this as something that this was the poster child we needed when we were working on, on legislation to drive this concept home of why corporations need to be accountable and responsible for the waste that they create. And so to make a, another long story short, we were at that point partnering with a number of groups that were focusing on plastic pollution. One of the things that we saw is that they'd done this incredible job raising awareness about the problem, but that the, the scale of the solutions work was nowhere near the scale of the problem. And so we were able to pull a meeting together. This is the fall of 2015 in Berkeley, California, of all of the organizations in the United States that had a plastic pollution project that was bigger than a community level project. And, you know, we started at that point to kind of iterate this idea for, you know, how can we align our projects, our campaigns, our fundraising, so that we can really start to have an impact on this problem at scale. And there was also an international initiative that was working on the same idea at the same time. And so essentially this international initiative was working to link up the plastics efforts and the efforts on zero waste in, in Europe, in the United States, and in Southeast Asia, and increasingly more of the developing world. And to make a very another very long story short, over the course of three years, you know, those conversations grew into this big global movement called Break Free from Plastic with several thousand organizations that are now collaborating together around the world. And so it was this funny way of like getting, getting to plastics through this, you know, this very wonky policy that was fundamentally about corporate accountability for waste failing <laughs> and then realizing that the poster child we needed for real corporate accountability for waste and packaging was plastic pollution. And I'll say, you know, one more thing and stop, like the awareness around plastic pollution, the public outrage around plastic pollution has been driving the conversation forward on sustainable packaging over in a way that I've never seen it in almost 20 years of working on these issues. Like the last couple of years, there's been so many, you know, just initiatives, public-private partnerships, corporate commitments, laws passed, communities taking action, kids changing their schools. Like the world has woken up to plastics and waste in a way that we really haven't ever seen before. And as somebody that's worked on these for 20 years, it's just incredibly exciting and inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And as someone who started working on this issue just half a year ago, 
I think it was really interesting for me personally to just like do Google search online and just see the sheer number of organizations that have already been really active within the plastic pollution space. And it's just been really inspiring. I remember just like looking at everything that people have done already and sort of all these social media movements for people all across the world of all ages. And I think that's just been really motivational to just look at personally. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I know you're talking about trying to shift the conversation when it comes down to uh, companies themselves and trying to get corporations to move away from plastic waste, generating plastic waste, etc. And I think one thing that we've found is that many companies have this habit of committing to make some sort of change or saying that they're going to be doing something just for the sake of saying it. And we yep. think that a lot of corporations have been particularly slow in adopting like responsive actions to the plastic pollution problem, despite all of the efforts made by organizations such as yours to try and push the conversation in the right direction. So since you've worked with <laughs> thousands of businesses already, I was wondering sort of what have you learned about how to make this transition more attractive for these corporations so they're more willing to actually take action and not just idly sit there? Oh, I, I love that question. You know, I think over the last five years, I've really witnessed major corporations kind of going through the five stages of grief <laughs> when it comes to their plastic pollution impact and their footprint. Um, you know, I think it started, of course, with denial <laughs> that there's there's no problem here or, you know, the oceans can swallow up all this plastic or don't look at us, look at somebody else. And then I think this gradual acceptance, I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with representatives from big corporations that have told me that they feel personally responsible for this problem. They feel like they have to fix it. It's unacceptable for their brand to be all over the beaches of this planet and to be in the bellies of wildlife and increasingly in the bellies of human beings. And I think they, there is a, an understanding that we need to, to fix this problem. And I think you know, we're really starting to see some commitments from companies that I never would have guessed would have been possible you know, five years ago. So in that regard, it is really, really exciting to see all the momentum that you know, not just kids and policymakers and scientists are generating around this issue, but actually to see corporations like taking this issue quite seriously. But the problem that we have <laughs> is that a lot of the solutions that are being presented or discussed or worked around are, from our perspective, are false solutions. They're solutions that don't really challenge or threaten the status quo of our throwaway culture and our throwaway society. Um, you know, we're hearing a lot of things like, oh, we just need to recycle more or let's not use single use plastic. We're going to use single use paper or single use aluminum or another single use product. And what we've discovered from looking at the science, so the science behind the environmental attributes of different types of materials is called life cycle analysis or life cycle assessment. You want to look at the cradle to grave or cradle to cradle impacts of a certain material over its life cycle, right? And so what we found is that when you switch from single-use plastic to single-use something else, 
that you're generally just trading one set of environmental issues for another set of environmental issues. And I think this really upsets people when I talk about the, the happy little brown compostable box that you might get at Whole Foods when you're taking out a salad or some hot food to go. You know, it's got the little compostable green in green ink on it, and it seems really good, right? But when you compare that to a styrofoam clamshell, for example, a styrofoam kind of salad or hot food container, that paper container actually uses more carbon emissions. It requires more water to make it. It's often pulped with toxic grease resistant coatings <laughs> that are more carcinogenic than styrofoam. And you're trading one set of issues for another. Now that's the bad news. But the good news is, is that what we found is that if you can figure out ways to get people what they want and need without generating any waste in the first place, either through designing out the need for packaging or through using reusable packaging, that that wins for the environment every single time. Basically, you hit a certain like break-even point, like if it's two uses or five uses or 10 or 20 uses of that reusable product, and then every single use of that reusable product after the fact has environmental gains. And the other good news is that it, reuse isn't just good for the environment, it also can save businesses money. Um, so my colleagues, Miriam Gordon and Samantha Summer at Upstream, they started a project in the San Francisco Bay Area that's called Rethink Disposable that has now worked with several hundred different types of food service businesses, everything from fast food to mom and pop restaurants, to chains, to corporate campuses and college campuses and their food service businesses, even to food trucks. And they've shown that 100% of the businesses that make this transition out of single use to reuse, that 100% of those businesses have saved money. And so the other thing that we're really excited about is that reuse is not only good for the environment, it can save businesses money, but it also creates new entrepreneurial opportunities for investors and entrepreneurs and for communities. So I mentioned the example of the, the reusable coffee cup service, right? There's all of these companies that are emerging, you know, not just here in the United States, but around the world that are working to provide those reusable services, not just for cafes, but imagine like when we can go to concerts again or go to, you know, watch sports again, or, or even just go to some big event that we're excited about. There are companies that are coming in to provide services so that those events can basically be zero waste events. All the cups that are used for beer would be done with these reusable cups and there'd be a, a dishwashing service that would pick up all the dirty cups, wash them on site and get them right back out to the bartenders and the people that are serving drinks to serve people in reusables in ways that are completely hygienic and that deal with any threat of microbes or COVID or anything else like that. Um, so we're super excited about that. And the other thing that we're seeing is to go and take out a meal delivery, that there are companies that are coming in to hack those challenges. So I got a call um, from the Washington Post just last month. There's the food critic there who's used to going to restaurants and being served all this delicious food at restaurants and then writing about it. He's now having to get all that food delivered to his home. And so he conducted this experiment where three weeks he decided to save up all of the single-use stuff that was shipped to his home through ordering food from the restaurants. And it literally covered his entire yard. <laughs> In three weeks' time, he said there was one takeout uh, meal that was delivered for two people that had like over 30 different single-use 
products associated with it. Oh, wow. And he said, like, what can I do to change this? And I said, well, the good news is, is that there are companies that are coming in literally to hack the challenge of delivering to go and take out food and reusable. So let's say that you ordered Chinese food delivered to your home or your office on Wednesday. And then on you know, Friday, you ordered Italian food delivered to your home or office. You can hand the delivery driver the dirty box. They give you your next uh, meal to go on the clean box. And then the dirty boxes get put back into a system where they get collected and transferred to a, essentially a dishwashing warehouse that commercially cleans, sanitize, and dries them and then puts them right back into service the next day. And so imagine a city where all the restaurants are now using some kind of reuse service and you can see like how much of a game changer that would be for the amount of waste we generate from food. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just mentioned how COVID-19 has changed a lot of consumer habits recently. And I know I've been following the news and unfortunately, um, with the pandemic, plastic pollution has been worsening. I know there's been a lot of research currently being done on how surgical masks and how the increase yeah. of waste when it comes down to like things such as surgical masks, gloves, et cetera, have contributed to microplastic pollution and how all of this has just been worsening recently. So I was wondering from your perspective, what do you think have been some of the most notable effects of the pandemic on the plastic pollution problem. And at Upstream, have any of your initiatives been affected so far? I know a lot of us have been dealing with very unexpected events occurring when it comes down to COVID. So I think That's it'll be a interesting great question. like both aspects of that, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, there's the, the one that you mentioned, of course, with all the increase in personal protective equipment, and the, the single use nature of a lot of that personal protective equipment. And it's not just here in the United States, but in Canada, but it's all over the world. And of course, you have places that, that don't have the same types of solid waste systems that we do have in, in the United States and Canada. And, you know, you're seeing just an explosion in personal protective equipment in the environment in these places and increasingly not just in developing countries, but also in developed countries as well. It's just a major source of pollution. I live in rural Maine, so I live 90 minutes from the nearest kind of city and I see pollution from PPE along the, the walks that I go on in my neighborhood. And it is surprising to see just what this explosion is doing. And I think what my family does and what I know a lot of other people are doing is like we have our reusable masks that we're, you know, we're washing and disinfecting. I mean, the good news about COVID is that it's incredibly susceptible to soap. <laughs> you know, soap just destroys it pretty much on contact. So if you're washing your reusable masks after you use them, you know, you've got a great chance of, of dealing with that problem. But when I think about the larger impacts to, to plastic pollution and also just the trends that we're seeing because of COVID, I think one of the very big ones is that we were doing a lot of work with venues before COVID hit. So one of the parts of our theory of change is that if we can convert large-scale venues, places where lots of Americans or Canadians go from all different walks, you know, different political backgrounds, different economic backgrounds. If we can go to those places like the, the educational centers, the aquariums and the zoos, or places where we gather to go to concerts or, you know, watch sports. If people start to 
get their habits changed at those places, we think that it's going to have an impact outside of those places. So for example, if I go to watch the Boston Celtics, you know, my favorite basketball team, and I go in there and all of a sudden the beer is being served in a reusable cup instead of a throwaway plastic cup. And there's a system there. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And, my, and, and now my behavior is changing. And if there's a sign that says, hey, by doing this change, we have saved X amount of cups from winding up in the landfill, this much climate pollution, we've saved this much water, and we've saved a lot of money. We think that those kinds of messages can filter out and have an impact on real people as they're going about their lives. Now that work just ground to a halt <laughs> because the venues aren't open right now. Like nobody's going to shows, nobody's going to the zoo, no one is are going to these places. And if they are, if some of them are open even at partial capacity, oftentimes the concessions are closed or it's literally just grab and go. Like it's it's very, you know, minimized for food and, and beverages. So that's had an impact. And then of course, I mentioned the impact that we're seeing with switching out from going grocery shopping, for example, to having your groceries delivered. So instead of having, you know, your reusable bags with you as you're going out grocery shopping, you're now getting things delivered in throwaway boxes with plastic bags or paper bags, depending upon where you live. You know, a lot of us, instead of going to the pharmacy or the retail shops that we normally frequent, we're ordering a lot of that stuff online. And I don't know about your household, Eileen, but I know that in our household, like I'm like, and, and we, we're conscious of this stuff, but the amount of like cardboard Amazon boxes are stacking mm -hmm. up. And yes, this stuff is recyclable in theory, some of it is, but the recycling supply chain is still, there's still a lot of energy and inputs that go into just recycling the stuff that we don't want anymore. And so I think that a lot of Americans and, and a lot of Canadians are now seeing like, wow, I generate a lot of waste that I didn't even think about. Like I haven't gone anywhere. I've been sitting in my house, but all this stuff is coming to me and only a small percentage of it may be recyclable or maybe even your recycling center has shut down. We've seen this happen in a lot of places where, you know, recycling and composting operations have been either temporarily paused or shuttered because of collapses in the markets, because of concerns about COVID and contamination of these materials and people handling them. And so I think that like we're waking up to the fact that our the way that our current kind of consumption lifestyle is oriented is generating a lot of garbage. And we've heard from a lot of our constituents and a lot of people that work with us that people are wanting to do something about it. And that's why that's why we get so excited about this message of imagine what it would be like if all this stuff was, was all the single use stuff was gone. Imagine if we really were getting the goods and services that we wanted in ways that generated no waste at all or very, very little waste. And we're trying to get policymakers and community leaders and corporate leaders excited about imagining that and, and co-creating it out there in the real world. Yeah, for sure. And I think if you want to look at COVID-19 in a positive light, I think all of this has just helped us realize how many new initiatives we could create when it comes down to tackling plastic pollution. Like you mentioned, there's this problem of us having all of this single-use waste when we order online. And I think a lot of us weren't really aware of that. And then personally, I've seen in my family just an increase of like we did a lot of grocery shopping online when COVID was really bad and just seeing yeah. the plastic containers pile up. Yeah. It was just like a big wake up call to me. So I think 
that's like a really great point on your part. And just one last question for today related to COVID-19. If you could use this slowdown to change one major part of your initiatives or operations going forward, I wanted to know where do you think you have room for the most growth? Oh, I love that question. Such a great question. You know, I mentioned this, like the challenges we've been having at venues because they, you know, they're largely shut down to the public. But what that has encouraged us to focus on has been the takeout and to go and delivery, right? It's because so many of us are, we're not sitting in restaurants anymore. We're ordering from our restaurants, trying to keep them in business. And we're getting all this throwaway garbage delivered to our house along with the meal that we ordered that we feel like this is just ripe for disruption. And so we have engaged in a number of pilots. Right now we're, we're working in the San Francisco Bay Area with a couple of different companies to pilot reusable takeout to go and meal delivery systems. And what we want to do is prove, just like I mentioned my colleagues you know, with the Rethink Disposable Project proved that sitting down at a restaurant, it's cheaper and better for businesses and for customers to get out of single use and switch to real and reusable plates and cutlery and cups and things like that. We want to prove that reusable containers and those kinds of services and systems can work for takeout and for delivery and that customers are going to like it, that the restaurant owners are going to like it and that the logistics of it and the financing and economics of it are doable at scale. One of the things that I'm really excited about, and you might've seen this news just came out last week is that Burger King and Tim Hortons are piloting, delivering takeout food and takeout beverages in reusable cups and containers. Mm -hmm. um, they're partnering with Loop and TerraCycle, which is a company that we work with that is innovating around how to get consumers what they want in reusable containers and cups and things like that. Loop has been primarily known for delivering personal care products and sundry items like laundry detergent and even snacks in reusable containers to your home in a couple of different cities around the US and, and Europe. But now they're expanding into working with fast food. And in lieu of the communities passing policies, which is another big thing that we could talk more about, but in lieu of the cities that don't yet have these reuse service infrastructure set up, the companies taking action on their own to pilot these initiatives is like a huge signal that this is, they're thinking about this. They recognize the benefits of doing this. They recognize the benefits even to brand loyalty. So, you know, if I've got a reusable container that I'm supposed to bring back to Burger King, maybe I'll go back and order another burger, right? So mm -hmm. I think companies are starting to think this way that there's other benefits to them other than just like what's good for the environment. And so I think if like the one big thing that COVID has really helped us to see is that really going all in on proving that reuse can work for takeout and meal delivery, um, especially as that's growing exponentially, not just here in the United States, but around the world, is just a major opportunity for us. And it's a major opportunity to completely transform the space that has been built around a throwaway disposable model. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I'm just thinking if we can actually successfully capitalize on this rise in awareness about shifting towards initiatives which deal with plastic pollution, and if more and more companies get on board, 
and just thinking about the level of impact that could have, and that's really exciting. And I guess on that note, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to have this conversation. It's been really insightful, and I'm personally a really big fan of your work at Upstream. So it's been a real pleasure getting to talk to you today. Such a pleasure, Aileen. 